All right, well, good evening. Um, if you were in attendance uh, two weeks ago, then you may recall that I used an illustration for, from the first movie of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, to introduce the shared mission or shared goal of John and the other eyewitnesses in proclaiming the good news regarding that which was revealed or manifested to the apostles, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, if you don't know, we're in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 1. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first four verses, and this evening we'll be looking at verses 5 through 10, the the rest of chapter 1 there in the letter of 1 John. So for tonight, perhaps for your pleasure or perhaps for your disdain, I have chosen another movie to lead us into our text this evening. This movie was released in 1984, and it stars Robert Redford, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall, and Kim Basinger. An instant American classic, in my opinion. The main character, played by Redford, is named Roy Hobbs, and the name of the movie is called The Natural. Hobbs, who learns the game of baseball from his father is a bright, young, and very talented left-handed pitcher. And at the young age of 19, he's off to try out for the infamous Chicago Cubs. Before trying out for the team, Hobbs encounters an unexpected tragedy. He suffers a gunshot wound in the abdomen by a mysterious woman that he meets on the train to Chicago. It was later determined that this woman was intentionally targeting top, top talented athletes for some unknown reason. As you can imagine, his baseball career was sidetracked. And so 16 years later, at the ripe age of 35, Hobbs makes his way to the big leagues by earning a spot as an outfielder for the shameful New York Knights. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that Hobbs, as an adolescent, he makes a wooden bat from an oak tree that was struck by lightning on his mom and dad's farm. On the barrel of the bat, he carves a lightning bolt and the word Wonder Boy. It turns out that Hobbs, a middle-aged rookie, is a hitting sensation. Whatever he desires to hit, he hits. Singles, doubles, triples, and of course, towering home runs. As a result, the New York Knights, they catch fire and they go on a tremendous winning streak, climbing themselves out of last place in the division to first place in the division. However, during this rise to first place, Hobbs suffers a terrible slump. He completely loses his swing and he fails to make any sort of contact with the baseball whatsoever. The slump was so horrific that some would say he could not hit water even if he fell out of a boat. During his slump, in which his batting average is plummeting faster than a speeding bullet, Hobbs is romantically involved with a woman who seems to consistently dress in black. The movie suggests that the woman dressed in black emits or radiates some sort of negativity or bad karma, so much so that it affects Hobbes' ability to hit home runs or any type of base hit for that matter. 
And again, if you're familiar with the, the movie, then you know that during a particular game against the Cubs at legendary Wrigley Field, there's a particular scene here where a woman played by Glenn Close, she's dressed in white and with the sunlight setting from the setting sun shining brightly behind her, she stands up in the stands as Hobbs is in the batter's box. And at this particular scene, he, he steps out of, the batter, out of the batter's box after a swing and a miss. And it seems likely that he's in for another strikeout. But as he attempts to regain his focus, he notices the woman dressed in white standing up in the stands. And in that moment, it's, 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 it's as if Hobbes supernaturally regains his strength, his determination, and his focus. For on the next pitch, he connects and drives the baseball so perfectly that it smashes into the stadium clock located on the stadium scoreboard in deep center field. So at this point, you may be wondering, well, where am I going with this? Or perhaps you may be thinking, what's the point? Well, the point is the director's use of colors, white and black. As I mentioned earlier, the woman dressed in black is symbolic for that which is negative or unrighteous or impure or deceptive. And the woman dressed in white is symbolic for that which is positive or righteous or pure or that which is true. So the moral of that story is, men, don't date anyone, any woman who dresses in black consistently. And so in our text this evening, we're going to see another use of symbolism by the Apostle John. And in our particular passage, he uses light and darkness to instruct us about who God is and how we should live or walk in consideration of who God is. So we need to understand this use of symbolism in order to understand John's practical ob- application for his audience and for us. And so our main idea this evening is this. If believers claim to have fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. So again, our main idea is if believers claim to have fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And we're going to see four truths from our text this evening. One, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Two, professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. Three, believers must recognize their own sin struggles and then seek to confess their sins to God. And four, if a person claims to not have engaged in the practice of sin, then the truth of God does not reside in him or her. So if you haven't done so already, please turn to 1 John chapter 1. You may follow along as I read aloud. I'm going to read aloud the first 10 verses or all of the verses in chapter 1. So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes... Beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That is our reading for this evening. May that be a blessing and encouragement to your hearts and souls. Uh, Please join me in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, our time together this evening to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to to hear from your inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word, Lord. We thank you for this beautiful day, this beautiful afternoon that you have given us, Lord God. We thank you for family and friends and thank you for the wonderful testimonies of of faith this morning uh, in the act of baptism, Lord. We, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the profession of faith that has been made uh, in those six that were being baptized uh, this morning, and we thank you that we can come together and, and rejoice and celebrate in that testimony and, and the inward work that you have accomplished, because we know that salvation is a work of the Lord, and you have replaced hearts of stone with hearts of flesh so that we can turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, our time together tonight would be uh, encouraging. I pray, Lord, that uh, the Spirit would give us comfort and conviction in the things that we are learning and reading here in in 1 John. And Lord, I pray that I would not be a distraction to the proclamation of your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in our first four verses of this chapter, we see that John and the other eyewitnesses, the apostles, they testify to and proclaim the glorious reality of the eternal Son of God stepping down from his heavenly throne by taking on human flesh in the incarnation. The word of life, or the eternal life, that which was with the Father from the pre-dawn of time, is being revealed or manifested to John and the other apostles in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also observed in the first four verses that John and the apostles, in some sense, invite their audience to have fellowship with them as they too have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. In other words, John is saying, if you receive our teaching, that's apostolic teaching, then you are in fact receiving and accepting the teaching of Christ. And if you receive the teaching of Christ, then you have fellowship with God the Father. In a very similar fashion, Jesus says essentially the same thing in the Gospel of John. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send 
receives me, that's Christ, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, which is the Father. So in verse 5 of our text this evening, John informs us of the message that him and the other apostles have heard from the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This message that Jesus taught to his followers and the message that John is now proclaiming to us and his audience is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And this is our first truth for this evening. So what does it mean when John writes, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all? Well, as I mentioned in our opening few minutes, the Apostle John here is using symbolism to describe the character and nature of who God is. But but before we understand the meaning behind the truth claim, God is light, let us first state what John is not claiming. He's not saying that the, the divine essence of God is somehow contained within the light particles or photons that are moving about in this room. If that were true, then we dive into this realm of pantheism, which claims that a tree is God, or that a rock is God, or that a door is God, or that an animal is God. So we need to remember, as we've been learning in our Trinity class on Sunday morning, that God is not composed of parts. That's called divine simplicity. For if God were composed of parts then he can be molded or manipulated. And as a result, he fails to be a timeless and matchless God. So to say that God is light is to say that God is pure. God is true. God is holy. God is righteous. God is morally perfect. Psalm 119, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Isaiah 57, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So the truth claim that God is light, it's absolute. It is certain. It is true and solid and trustworthy in every place and every time and in every culture. And since God is light, no darkness resides in him. Now darkness is symbolic for that which is evil, unrighteous impure, or sinful. In the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, we also see this use of the light-darkness distinction. John chapter 1, verse 5, God writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John chapter 3, God says, And this is the judgment. The light, the Lord Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved darkness. They loved their sin, their unrighteousness, their impurity rather than the light, because their works were evil. And of course, we are familiar with John chapter 8, verse 12, which states, this is Jesus speaking, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So not only does the statement, God is light, indicate the character and nature of God, it also takes on a sense of that which has been revealed, which certainly makes sense in view of the first four verses of chapter 1. The eternal Son of God, or the Word of life, that which was with the Father from the beginning, before the foundation of the universe, the eternal Son of God revealed 
manifested to sinful mankind in order to be the savior of sinful mankind. One commentary states that light provides illumination in dark places and is an appropriate symbol for the way in which God reveals himself to men to show them how to live. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The author of Hebrews writes, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the divine radiance, the luminosity or the intrinsic brightness of the glory of God revealed to his people. The true light being revealed to a dark, broken, sinful world. So God is true. God is holy. God is righteous. God is morally perfect. He is without sin. Evil, darkness, deceit, falsehoods, these things have no residency in his character and nature. This simple truth regarding the character of God and the revelation of God in the person of Christ is foundational for John's ethical and moral exhortations, not only in the following verses, but also throughout the remainder of his letter. So again, truth number one, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So let's pick the text back up here in verses six and seven. John writes, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This leads us to our second truth for this evening. Professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. And this truth echoes really the, our main idea, which is if believers claim to, have, claim to have fellowship with God, then we must walk in the light as he is in the light. So in verse 6, John is simply stating that if a person claims to have fellowship with God and yet lives a life that is characterized by the consistent and habitual practice of sin, lawlessness, deceit, impurity, and unrighteousness, then that individual does not have fellowship with God. So John says essentially that this individual is a liar. To verbally claim or profess that you have an association or a fellowship with God the Father, while at the same time your conduct or character or morality reveals that you practice sin, disobedience, and wickedness, well, John said that's, that's a straight-up lie. The two are inconsistent with one another. It's a contradiction. If a person claims to have fellowship with God, and yet our actions and our behavior communicate something entirely different, then we would conclude that this particular individual is a hypocrite. And if you look up hypocrisy in the dictionary, this is what you will find. It says, The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. And what is the moral standard or belief that John is communicating to his audience? Well, he's saying that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Right? And if you claim, as he says in verse 6, to have fellowship with God while you walk, walk in darkness, 
Well, then you lie and you do not practice the truth. So if your profession or claim is not consistent with your lifestyle, with your choices, your actions, your speech, your conduct, then you are a liar. Our morality, uh, our external conduct must be consistent with our claim or our profession. For what sort of association or fellowship can you claim to have with God if you live in darkness? What sort of fellowship is there between sin and righteousness? The answer is none. There is no fellowship with God if a person walks or lives in darkness. For God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. And Jesus states in the Gospel of John that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, whoever follows after the Lord Jesus Christ will walk or live in the true light. That is, the light of the world. So we must seek to walk or live or to practice righteousness, purity, godliness, and holiness. Our character and our morality must be consistent with the character and morality of God. So truth claim or truth number two, again, professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must walk in the light as God is in the light. John also states at the end of verse six that the person who claims to have fellowship with God while living in darkness is not only one who lies, but also one who does not practice the truth. What, what truth is John referring to? Well, it's the truth, the, the truth which was from the beginning and that which was revealed or manifested to the apostles in the person of Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to practice the truth is to walk or live in the light. To walk or live in the light is to practice the truth. John writes in um, chapter 2 of this letter. He says, if anyone claims to abide in Christ, then we must walk or live in the same way in which Jesus lived or walked. God is the standard of our morality and ethics. So if we are walking in darkness, then we do not practice the truth. We are, in fact, practicing lawlessness. An individual cannot walk in darkness and at the same time practice the truth. So professing believers in the Lord Jesus must seek to walk in the light as God is in the light. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. In verse 7, we see a couple of things or a couple of results uh, for walking in the light. We know that walking in the light implies that we are practicing righteousness as God himself is in the light. God himself is in the light because he only acts according to his character and nature. Since God is holy, just, and righteous, his ways or his words or his actions are completely and wholly consistent with his character and nature. The author of Hebrews writes that it is impossible for God to lie. To do so would be contrary to his nature. So we see these results or consequences for walking in the light. First, 
we have fellowship with one another. You would think that John would say uh, here that if we're walking in the light, then we would have fellowship with God in consideration of what was stated in verse 6. And this is most certainly true for the professing born-again believer who practices and lives and walks in righteousness. Indeed, they have fellowship or commonality with God. But John is likely addressing some falsehoods or perhaps some false teachers in and through these verses. It seems likely that some individuals were claiming that you could walk in darkness and that as a result maintain fellowship not only with God, but with also with those within the church. But John is in fact saying here that if you walk in darkness consistently and habitually, then you cannot have fellowship with God. And you cannot have fellowship or association with other believers within the church. For what sort of shared commonality does walking in the light and walking in the darkness have? Nothing. There is no shared common, commonness whatsoever. What sort of commonality or fellowship can you have between a person who practices habitually and consistently unrepented sin with that person who practices righteousness and purity? Nothing. There is no shared goal or shared purpose between the two. So as believers walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have a a shared goal, a shared mission, a, a commonality in that we as brothers and sisters in Christ are striving to practice consistently and habitually holiness and righteousness as God works in us to conform us and transform us into the image of his son. So professing believers in the Lord Jesus must walk in the light as God is in the light. The second result of walking in the light that we see here in this verse is that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we, do, we need to remember that at the moment of our conversion... The moment in which we turned from our sin and placed our faith and trust in the person and work of Christ, we were justified. And justification simply means that we are now declared righteous. We are declared righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. So God views us now, after our conversion, as if we have never sinned and as if we have perfectly obeyed. We also need to be reminded that all of our past, present, and future sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians, Paul writes, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So there is a removal of our sins. There is a cancellation of all of our sins. But you know and I know we still live with the presence of sin in our lives. So in other words, we are rescued from the power of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin. And so John seems to be directing kind of our attention to this idea of progressive sanctification. And this simply means that we are in a process of becoming more and more like Christ as we continue to practice walking in the light and living in faithfulness and obedience. And so I think John is essentially saying that if we continue 
to practice. Of course, we don't do this perfectly, but consistently and habitually and with the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. But if we continue to walk or live in righteousness, abiding in Christ, obeying the commands of God, then the blood of Christ cleanses us or purifies us or sanctifies us from sin, setting us apart as children, not of darkness, but children of the light. So uh, this is not some sort of works-based salvation that John is referring to. He, He is simply speaking to the reality of the believer's walk with the Lord in a fallen, broken, sinful world. We deal with the presence of sin because we have not yet been fully glorified. Uh, If we think about uh, our baptism or the baptisms that we witnessed uh, this morning, uh, Jason referenced Romans chapter 6. Paul says that we died with Christ in our baptism in order that we too would walk or live in the newness of life. He goes on to write, Paul here in Romans 6, that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We have been set free from sin, Paul says, so we must also consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So as we seek to put to death sinful deeds of the body, we are striving and working towards holiness, righteousness, and purity. In and through and by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And if we're doing those things, we have fellowship with one another. We have a shared goal, a shared purpose with one another. And of course, the blood of Jesus purifies us, sanctifies us from all sin. And certainly we will experience that reality in our resurrected bodies. So let's look at uh, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this leads us to truth number 3. Believers must recognize their own sin struggles. We, we must recognize our own sin struggles and then seek to confess our sins to God. In verse 8, John seems to be addressing certain individuals who are claiming that they are without sin. And if you claim to be without sin, John says, then you are deceived and the truth is not in you. We know the Bible states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. David states in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Bible teaches us that we are sinners by nature and by choice or practice. And if you claim to be without sin, then you are deceived, which indicates that you have not received apostolic teaching or the teaching of Christ. Furthermore, the truth about that which was revealed to us is not in you. If you claim to be without sin, then you have no fellowship with us. That's the apostles, John and the apostles. And you have no fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. 
I mean, John takes this very seriously that if you just uh, flip over to Second John in his letter there in verse 10, Second John verse 10, he writes to the elect lady. He says, look, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that's this, the, the apostolic teaching, the, the truth regarding the eternal son of God, right? If, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, then do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so, I mean, John is certainly taking this very seriously, this idea of you claiming to be without sin. Right? You're definitely deceived and the truth is not in you. The reality of our current walk with the Lord is that believers still struggle with the presence of sin. At the moment of our conversion, we are given a new identity or a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So even though we have a new nature, the old nature has not been completely eradicated. So we experience this tension between the old man and the new man. The old nature versus the new nature. Or the flesh versus the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. So there's a battle and a tension that we face each and every day. Paul says in Galatians, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Right? And that, very, and that, that verse in, in Galatians chapter 5 definitely speaks to that reality. I can certainly remember as a new believer in the Lord, I foolishly thought that after my conversion, I was going to be perfect or that I was going to be without sin. I'm like, what the world is going on here? I'm still, I made this profession of faith and, and I've turned from my sin and put my faith and trust in Christ, but yeah, I'm still struggling with some of the sins for my old lifestyle, right? And so we definitely experience and know that tension. But as, Paul, or as John has been instructing us, right, if we confess our sins, right, if we acknowledge that we still struggle with the presence of sin, right, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us and sanctify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that, of course, we must be, if that, if that is going to happen, then we need to be walking in the light, abiding in Christ, practicing obedience to the commands of the scripture. So we, we all know and realize that in our Christian lifestyle, in our walk, there is a tug of war battle going on between the old man and the new man or between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And I know looking back when I was a new believer in the Lord, I wish someone would have just came along to me, uh, alongside of me and said, look, welcome to the battle, right? Welcome to the war, because it was a struggle early on in my walk with the Lord. But because of our new nature or our new identity, we have the capacity to resist the sinful flesh, 
in and through and by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. So we see, for example, like in Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Those things are associated with darkness. He says, in these you too once walked, or in these you too once lived, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off that old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of, the, of its creator. So how can the new self be renewed after the image of God? Well, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And how can we practice or strive to walk in the light? We recognize our own sin struggles and we seek to confess our sins to God. So instead of claiming that we are without sin, we need to confess our sins. As I mentioned previously, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all struggle with sin to a certain, de- a certain degree. I sin against my wife. I sin against my children. So what do we do? We confess as David does in Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So again, our truth, uh, for truth number three is that believers must recognize, we must recognize our own sin struggles and then seek to confess our sins to the Lord. If we seek to maintain a close fellowship with one another and with God, then we recognize our sin struggles and we work to confess our sins to God and to others. For if you don't, then our fellowship with other believers and with God is greatly hindered. Even though all our past, present, and future sins are forgiven, and that speaks to this idea of positional forgiveness, as some scholars and theologians will say, this positional forgiveness. Well, when we sin against one another or we sin against God, as after our conversion, the relationship is hindered until the relationship is restored or renewed. This is called relational forgiveness. So we know this in our relationships with our spouses and with our children, right? If a, if a husband sins against his wife, the relationship is hindered until the husband seeks to amend or restore the relationship by confessing his sin and asking forgiveness for that specific sin, right? When we sin against our spouses, there's a consequence, okay? For us men, we may have to sleep on the couch for a night or two until we humble ourselves, right, and go to our wives and seek to restore or reconcile the relationship. And so we do this when we sin uh, against God. We need to confess, For any horizontal sin is also a vertical sin against God. And we can be confident and sure that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, that idea of relational forgiveness, and to cleanse us, to purify us, to sanctify us from all unrighteousness. Again, as he seeks to mold us 
and shape us into the image of Christ. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This leads us to truth number four. If a person claims to, have in, to not have engaged in the practice of sin, then the truth of God does not reside in him or her. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's the difference between uh, verse 10 when he says we say we have not sinned? And what's the difference between uh, verse 8, we say we have no sin? Well, it seems, uh, based on my study and some commentaries that I referenced, that it seems that John was up against some false teachers who evidently were claiming that you could have perhaps no sin, maybe spiritually, or maybe the flesh might have been completely glorified or restored, saying they were without sin. But then it seems like here in verse 10, This is the idea of a practice of sin, right? If we say we have not sin in our external conduct or behavior, um, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Um, Yes, so to deny that you have not sinned is to deny the revelation of the divine truth. It is to deny that which was from the beginning. To deny that you have committed an external behavior that is sinful is to, de- to deny the universal biblical truth that all have sinned by choice and by nature. 1 Kings 8.46 says, For there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, All have turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. So John is really communicating here, which I've already stated, that we are sinners by nature and by choice. If a person claims to not have engaged in the practice of sin, then the truth of God does not reside in him or her. If you are a non-believer here this evening, then you are living in the darkness You are a child of wrath, living or walking in the passions of the flesh. You must recognize your sin against the holy, just, and righteous God and turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he suffered the punishment you deserve, and because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can have life in him. John says in uh, chapter 5 of this letter, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we urge you and consider, we urge you to consider your life before a holy, just, and righteous God. Turn from your sin, repent, and put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we must seek to walk in purity and righteousness just as God is holy, pure, and righteous. For He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And we do that in the body in the local church, coming alongside one another, practicing and living out the one another's, loving one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. 
We must also seek to recognize our own sins. And then we seek to confess our sins to him to restore and renew our relationship with him. That, re- that idea of relational forgiveness. For we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let us remember that we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us to help us as we seek to put to death sinful deeds of the flesh. And the promise that John reminds us of is that we have eternal life in the Son of God and that we have an advocate, as we will see in our time in two weeks, we have an advocate that when we do sin, we have the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for our time together this evening. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the written word of God. We thank you for the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for these great truths. Yes, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, thinking about uh, the forgiveness of sins that we have in the blood of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we thank you for that great sacrifice. And we thank you for the great love that we have seen that we testify to and we proclaim, Lord God, and that you sent your son, Jesus. Jesus stepping out of his lofty throne, his heavenly throne, taking on human flesh in the incarnation, becoming like us, dying in our place. We thank you for that great gift. And Lord, let us be assured that for all who repent, who turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ, have eternal life, the word of life, the eternal son of God living inside of them. We thank you for that great truth, for we do struggle with the presence of sin, Lord, but we can have confidence knowing that he who is great, he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we thank you for that great truth. And so, Lord, help us as we go out to proclaim and to testify these great truths that we are learning about in First John. Help us to encourage one another, to pray for one another, and to urge one another on in practicing holiness, godliness, and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.